Welcome to What Your GP Doesn't Tell You, the podcast for both doctors and patients with me, Liz Tucker. Joining me this week is Dr. Robert Lufkin, who argues that modern medicine hasn't paid nearly enough attention to the underlying causes of diseases and has tended to treat symptoms instead. And in a controversial new book, Lies I Taught at Medical School, How Conventional Medicine is Making You Sicker and What You Can Do to Save Your Own Life, published by Ben Bella Books, he points to the epidemics of chronic disease we are now seeing in the industrialized world. In the US in 2010, 16 to 21% of adults had two or more chronic diseases. Today, shockingly, the figure is 40%. Rob explains what needs to change and why he believes medical teaching gets a number of pivotal facts so wrong. But before his interview, a brief request from me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to leave a review on Spotify or Apple, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. You can also become a paid supporter of the podcast at patreon.com slash you or via PayPal on my website, whatyourgpdoesnttellyou.com. A huge amount of work goes into both the research and production of this podcast. So even a small amount of money makes a huge difference. And you can find out more information about the pod on my website, where you can sign up for the podcast mailing list, follow me on Twitter at Liz C. Tucker, and on my Substack account, liz.tucker.substack.com. Many thanks. And now back to Rob's interview. Dr. Robert Lufkin is currently adjunct clinical professor of radiology at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He's also chief of metabolic imaging at a large medical network in Southern California. Previously, Rob has been president of the Society of Magnetic Resonance Imaging and president of the American Society of Head and Neck Radiology. In addition to being a practicing physician, he's author of over 200 peer-reviewed scientific papers and 14 books. Rob was on the podcast a few months ago talking about the latest research into longevity. Here's his interview. So Rob, great to see you again. Yeah, Liz, so much fun to be back on your show now for the second time. This is a blast. So, Rob, you're clearly not pulling any punches in your new book, referring to these 10 lies taught at medical school. But are these actually lies in terms of a definite intention to mislead as opposed to having a different perspective or viewpoint? Yeah. That's a key point, kind of a clickbait title to get people's attention because I wanted to get people's attention. I want them to pay attention to these things. But to your question, no, these are not intentional lies that certainly I taught. And I don't think you know people intentionally teach them as lies. But what I'm trying to point out is there's a preponderance of evidence that for some of these statements, I believe that they're no longer true. So I think, Robert, the heart of your argument is that the medical system hasn't paid enough attention to the underlying causes of diseases, treating symptom, not cause. And actually, certainly for the majority of chronic disease, that's really driven by metabolic issues. That's right. Our healthcare, you know, around the world is focused on taking care of symptoms. And we're great at acute findings. You get hit by a car, you break your leg. Where we fail and the evidence shows that is in chronic diseases, things like obesity, diabetes, cancer, 
heart attack, stroke, and Alzheimer's disease. Those are the main killers. Those are what most of us will die of. Most of them are increasing dramatically, especially obesity and diabetes around the world. Later on, these are going to drive the other diseases as well, because the interesting thing is uh, these chronic diseases, although they manifest very differently, you know, Alzheimer's disease with mental problems versus obesity with weight problems, they're all linked at a fundamental metabolic level that we're, we're discovering. Now, Alzheimer's disease is referred to as type 3 diabetes because of its metabolic basis in many cases. So what you're saying is correct. The underlying metabolic problems are overlooked by our healthcare system, which is focused on treating the disease. In other words, a diabetic gets insulin instead of being told not to consume the types of foods that cause them to be diabetic. And so particularly for disease prevention, if we can keep our metabolic system in better shape, we've got a better chance of, of avoiding disease. And key to that seems to be controlling our insulin levels. Yeah, insulin resistance is a key factor. I mean, insulin resistance by definition is type 2 diabetes, but it can occur at a lower level in all of us, essentially with normal aging before we cross a threshold where we're actually diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We have creeping insulin resistance. And this is a major driver for, for all the chronic diseases I mentioned. Basically, normally when we eat something, our insulin levels go up and then they drop down again. And the more sugar we eat, the more insulin our body has to produce. But there comes a point when our body can't produce any more insulin. And that's when we're starting to get into these sort of danger areas. Yeah, yeah. The insulin resistance is the body, essentially it gets used to levels of insulin and it requires higher and higher levels of insulin to get the same effect. As you said, insulin is a major hormone that protects the body from high levels of glucose, which are harmful in the bloodstream. So the insulin tells the body to remove the glucose from the bloodstream and essentially store it as fat and, and use it for other metabolic things. But the interesting thing that I wasn't aware of before was that I used to think of type 2 diabetes, which is insulin resistance, as something that people either had it or you didn't have it. You know, it might be related to your, your genetics or something. There was an interesting study that came out recently that showed in non-diabetics, in other words, people without this type 2 diabetes, that if you track their insulin resistance as measured by a test called HA1C, which measures hemoglobin damage due to glucose, but it's a common, common test, this HA1C, ideally, it should be low. And as it gets higher and higher, you eventually get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Well, they followed uh, thousands of people from the Framingham study and from other sources who didn't have diabetes. And they found with age, this HA1C level, this marker for insulin resistance, increased across the board. And so the way I look at insulin resistance now and type 2 diabetes it's not an on or off switch, but it's something that builds over time, but it's almost an inevitable accompaniment of aging. In other words, it's sort of like gray hair. You know, if we live long enough, we'll all get gray hair if we don't die of something first. I feel the same way about insulin resistance and actually type 2 diabetes. You know, if you live long enough, your insulin resistance will cross over, at least for a significant portion of the population. And this isn't just a professional interest for you. It's also a personal interest. 
because in middle age, you found yourself developing a number of what might be termed metabolic disorders. Absolutely. Yeah, that was sort of the wake up call for me. My mom was a dietitian. So like most kids, I followed my mom's advice and we ate healthy foods as dictated by the government and the food pyramid and all the dietary recommendations that the medical establishment recommended, you know, low fat. We got rid of butter and we, we used margarine full of trans fats and seed oils. We substituted low fat foods for high fat foods and followed that plan. I followed this into my adult life and I continued on. I went to medical school. I taught and am a professor at at least two medical schools now. And I followed that advice, but I sort of had a wake-up call just a few years ago, as you mentioned, and I came down with four diseases. When I went to my doctor, she basically prescribed prescription medicines that would treat these diseases, or they would treat the symptoms of the diseases. And, and I got the prescription drugs, but I realized that these were the same diseases that my father had died of later on in life, but he was, he was almost 90 when he died. And I still had uh, young children at the time. So that story wasn't going to end well unless I did something. I basically began talking to colleagues. I began going back to the literature. I really dove into those areas and realized there was a lot of evidence that I wasn't aware of and that really changing the thinking about this. I looked closely at my lifestyle. I looked at the food I was eating. I looked at exercise and sleep and these other things. I made changes in my lifestyle. Long story short, Next time I went in to see my doctor, she said, I can't believe it. What happened? You know, <laughs> and uh, basically I went off all the prescription drugs. They were driven by factors that lifestyle was able to correct, whereas these prescription drugs were just treating the symptoms for. Now I'm off those medicines, but I've changed my lifestyle. I pay attention to a lot of things that I didn't pay as much attention to. The things I eat have changed. Everything's changed. I mean, you pointed out, Rob, that in your childhood, there's this sort of change to our eating pattern. And basically, in the 70s and 80s, there was a debate, was it fat that was bad for us or was it sugar? And the low-fat argument won out. But one of the consequences of that was, of course, if you take one thing out of the diet, you've got to replace it with something else. So the consequence of that was we actually ended up eating far more carbs and increasing, therefore, the amount of sugar we were consuming. Exactly. Yeah, that's the point. There are really three macronutrients. I'm sure your audience uh, knows this, but it's fat, protein, and carbohydrates, which include sugar. And when we switch our diet, we really keep the proteins constant for most diets. So, so the only dials we have are to dial up or down fats and dial up and down carbohydrates. And as you point out, if you go to a low-fat diet, you have to raise the carbohydrates to make up for it. There's the same calories and also to make the food taste good. What we had was all the foods that contained fat were now the fat was taken out and was replaced with sugar and other types of carbohydrates. And that I believe was one of the drivers to these chronic diseases that happened really in the 70s and 80s. And clearly there's been an increase in obesity, diseases such as diabetes type 2 have become more common, but association isn't always causation. That's absolutely right. I mean, everyone agrees that something happened in the 1980s where people 
everywhere in the world of all ages, including children, began to gain weight and get fat. About 10 years later, the type 2 diabetes rates began increasing. But you're right, the low-fat, low-carbohydrate dietary arguments, those are, those are associations. And we're not determining causality from that. There are other things that have happened too. The, the use of seed oils, uh, replacing saturated fats in all the fast food, the McDonald's and the Burger Kings, replacing lard with seed oils, which are pro-inflammatory. They drive insulin resistance, and that could be a factor as well. So there are a number of suspects, at least, for this. And particularly in the US, and also I think the UK is second to the US in this, the amount of ultra-processed food, people aren't home cooking in the way that they used to. Exactly. And, and the ultra-processed food, everyone can agree that's bad for us because it has high carbohydrates, it has high seed oils, and it has a lot of grains, a sort of junk food grains. I think grains are playing a role in inflammation as well. And so for my diet, I, I, I went off grains. But the junk food really is the big issue that now every store you go into is full of this, this type junk food, which drives inflammation, drives diabetes, and in my opinion, drives all these chronic diseases as well. And I was really amazed by the figure in your book when you start to look at the increase in chronic diseases. I think in the US in 2010, it's 16 to 21% of adults who've got two or more chronic diseases. By 2014, it's increased to 32%. And the figure today is 40%. Yeah. And that's that one particular test. And you can look at it through a number of lenses. There's a famous paper that looked at metabolic health across a large population. And they found that of adult Americans, 88% were metabolically unhealthy based on one or more of these metabolic markers like hypertension, dyslipidemia, these kinds of things. Hypertension, almost half of adults have hypertension, which is also a metabolic disease. Fatty liver disease, which non-alcoholic fatty liver disease did not exist before 1980. And it is now according to some studies, in 50% of adult Americans, and it is the number one cause for liver failure or liver transplants. And where America leads, the industrialized world tends to follow. Yeah, sadly, that's true. And Rob, you argue it's a mistake to think all calories are equal, because a calorie of carbohydrate is very different to, for example, a calorie of fat. Yeah, this is a big point of contention that medical schools still to this day teach in their dietary programs and their nutrition programs. And there's a whole industry of weight loss programs all around this. And the idea is that a calorie is a calorie and that calories in equals calories out, which, which makes sense intuitively. You eat more food, you'll gain weight. But the real issue, I think, is back to that hormone that you mentioned before, insulin, which is the driver for fat storage. So as a physician, I know that a person can eat as many calories as they want, but if they don't have insulin in their body, they will not gain weight. An example for that is a type 1 diabetic, which has very low insulin levels naturally because their pancreas is unable to produce them. And they can eat as much as they want, but they won't get fat because of the low insulin levels. Conversely, you can take anyone and if I inject them with insulin, 
they will gain weight almost independently of the amount of food they're they're eating. So what does that mean? It means that certain of these macronutrients, the three macronutrients, some drive insulin very high and tell our bodies to store fat. And others of these macronutrients have relatively little effect on insulin. So of the three macronutrients, fats really don't affect insulin at all. Proteins have a small effect on rising insulin. And carbohydrates basically shoot insulin through the roof. So if you want to gain weight, you eat carbohydrates, which drives the insulin. If you want to lose weight, have a diet that's high in protein and fat, and you'll lose weight. And that's the idea that a calorie isn't a calorie, but rather insulin drives weight loss. And for a lot of people, calories may not even matter as long as they control their insulin. Because basically, when we eat any carb, a substantial portion of it will turn to glucose in our bloodstream. That's absolutely right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I remember one patient coming in and they were still gaining weight. And I said, have you stopped the sugar like we talked about? And he goes, oh, yes, doc. Absolutely. I never touch sugar. I haven't touched sugar for a year. And I said, well, great. What did you have for breakfast? I had a piece of toast. And I said, well, wait, toast is made from flour. It's refined carbohydrates. It literally turns into glucose in your mouth. And eating a piece of toast or rice or flour or other bread, rapidly, the starch is converted to glucose. So it's it's not just sugar, table sugar, but foods that contain refined carbohydrates as well. A lot of us tend to think about metabolism really only in terms of how our bodies digest food, but you believe it's actually key in the development of many illnesses. Yes. I mean, metabolism, I believe, is at the root cause for most of these chronic diseases that are affecting us today, that it's really driven by metabolic factors. And when we change our metabolism through lifestyle, that's the other thing. There's really no drug you can take to change your metabolism to correct for these things. It's really about lifestyle. And we don't have a pill that will will do that yet. And of course, for diabetics, if they're taking additional insulin, if we know that insulin causes weight gain, that's going to exacerbate the health problems that any diabetic is facing. Absolutely. Obesity is linked to diabetes and a diabetic, a type 1 or type 2 diabetic eventually, as the disease progresses, if they don't cut out the carbohydrates and reverse the disease, they will progress to needing insulin. And then, as you say, the insulin drives weight gain, and so it becomes a, a self-reinforcing -re process. More weight gain makes the diabetes worse. Now, controversial, one of the things you suggest in the book, that the problem with modern agriculture is actually it made it possible for us to eat food at any time, which has led to a particular protein, which is present in our cells, called mTOR, being switched on. And that is something also that drives insulin production. Yeah, yeah. M mTOR is a fascinating protein. It wasn't discovered until uh, really the end of the 20th century. It's a metabolic switch. But it does a simple thing. It just looks at the environment. If nutrients are present, it tells the body to grow, begin generating, proliferating. If nutrients are not present, it tells the body, wait, turn on something called autophagy, salvage, salvage your cells, make do with what you have, but don't grow. For hundreds of thousands of years, mTOR would be turned on and off as food became available. 
it would be turned on, the, the animal would eat, and the cells would be told to grow. When food was not available, mTOR is turned off, but very important healthy things happen when mTOR is turned off. That repair mechanism, that autophagy, it turns down inflammation. So mTOR should be turned both on and off to have a healthy life. That, that at least is what most people believe. The problem you raised, which is a fascinating one, which Jared Diamond, who wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel many years ago, and then Yuval Harari, who wrote the great book Sapiens now, both of them made the statement that the single worst thing that ever happened to the human race was, unexpectedly, the agricultural revolution. And the reason is because prior to that, humans existed as hunter-gatherers, where mTOR was turned on and off at regular intervals. With agricultural, of course, grains became available all the time and people began eating more often. This only got worse in the last couple hundred years when the Industrial Revolution, we got refrigeration so we could refrigerate foods. And then, of course, as we've talked about already, in the last 40 years, the junk food revolution has now made eating something that people do literally the entire time they're awake. If people want to do one thing with their diet, they don't want to worry about carbs or fat or proteins or macronutrients. You can still improve your health and your, your metabolism just by eating less frequently. You know, maybe after dinner, brush your teeth and don't eat anymore. You know, and certainly don't snack between meals. Some people even go in the morning and will skip breakfast. Personally, I eat one meal a day and I've never felt better. And I think it's, it's improved my health and hopefully my longevity. We'll see. Because <laughs> that sounds terrifying to me, Rob, the idea of eating only once a day. How long did it take for your body to adapt to that? Well, yeah, that's a great question because I, I have a confession. I'm a recovering junk food addict. I mean, I lived on Twizzlers and Red Vines and all sorts of junk food. So thinking about cutting back eating, I, I was afraid that I would be hungry all the time. But an interesting thing happens uh, when people stop eating, eventually they'll burn up all the glucose they have in the glycogen storage. And then a natural thing happens, they just switch over and they start burning fat. And that's, that's called ketosis. And the interesting thing is when you're in ketosis, your appetite goes down. So now my one meal a day is dinner. I have it with my children and my family at the end of the day. But throughout the rest of the day, I just have black coffee or water. And I'm really not hungry. Sometimes I'll think about it's lunchtime, I should eat. But it's more a habit. A lot of people, myself included, have habits around eating. It's 12 o'clock. I should grab a sandwich. You know, it's breakfast. I should eat this. And I found that by being in ketosis and going for these periods of time, I'm really not hungry and I feel better than when I ate a big breakfast or I had a big lunch. I would have brain fog and all this stuff. To your point, there is a period of adjustment in there that, uh, you know, it could take a week or two even. And have you managed to persuade your family to follow your example? <laughs> well, my kids are still... Different for children. Yeah. We have to be careful about applying things to children. They need mTOR to be turned on more because they're growing. So what's good for them is actually bad for us later on, in my opinion. And my wife supports me in it. 
you know, we don't have much junk food in the house. And so she's helpful that way. And she's, she's participating in it in her own fashion. So it's key to have your family and, and your friends at least supporting you. Otherwise it's, otherwise it's an uphill battle. I mean, I tend to eat three meals a day, which is probably horrifying to you, Rob. But I do try to eat those within a certain window because, again, as I understand it, one of the, the arguments is you want to have mTOR switched off for a longer period of time. If you restrict the time in which you eat, that's helpful. Absolutely. And and Liz, I mean, no judgment here. Everybody is different. <laughs> and, and, you know, and this is just my N of one, what I'm doing to myself. And this is just my interpretation of the evidence I read as best I can from the scientific literature. So I think one of the tenets of weight loss has been you just need to move more and eat less. But basically, you think that's completely wrong. Yeah, there are some studies to prove that that I, I reference in the book. I try to use primary references in my book, the actual articles rather than a review article or something. There are primary studies that shows that exercise, as good as it is, exercise is healthy at least in moderate amounts, there are a lot of health benefits from exercise. But unfortunately, weight loss isn't one of them because how do you work up a good appetite? Well, you go exercise. <laughs> exercise drives a lot of health processes that drive our appetite and work against what we need to do to eat less. So exercising more is probably not a good thing. Now, eating less if you eat less of the foods that drive insulin, then it works. That's a good thing. But just saying eating fewer calories, it doesn't add any insight into the problem. It's like an alcoholic drinks too much. An obese person eats too much. But it's more about what they eat than, than the amount of calories. And what happens to our insulin levels when we exercise? It can drive them up initially, but then they go down. And exercise is very healthy for insulin resistance. It allows our bodies to, one, develop muscle mass, which use up glucose in our body and protect us from the glucose in the bloodstream. So exercise is healthy for a number of reasons for diabetics, for obese people, for, for basically everybody. But weight loss shouldn't be the goal. You can't outrun a bad diet. But can it stop you putting on the weight to begin with? Because when one looks at the figures of how much you've got to outrun to lose one pound, the figures look terrifying. But even if you just walk a bit and perhaps you use up three, four hundred calories, therefore you can eat more without getting fat. Yeah. Yeah. If you build up your muscle mass, you'll be able to consume more calories. Absolutely. That's good. I mean, I'm not against exercise. I'm all for it. It's one of the main pillars of lifestyle both physical and mental exercise. But as a primary tool for losing weight, I would not recommend that. Because by the time you've done your six-mile run, you feel like a couple of chocolate muffins. You've removed any benefit from that. Yeah, and even six miles will barely cover the calories in, you know, in a high-caloric, high-carbohydrate muffin. And Rob, people often think if they replace their sugar intake with artificial sweetness, that will help. But actually, in many cases, that could make things worse. Yeah. This is a question that comes up all the time. It's artificial sweeteners. Each one has been attacked for various reasons. 
Some interfere with gut health. Some actually affect the metabolism. Recent articles about cancer risk, which are certainly something to pay attention to, but we need, you know, we need to look at that more closely. The clarity that, that I've gotten about artificial sweeteners is interesting. And Jason Fung points this out all the time. Uh, he's the fasting expert. Been on the podcast a while back. Oh, he was. Oh, great. So, you, you know, he's a, he's a wonderful man and very bright. But he points out that the body has a reaction to sweetness and it's called a cephalic response to insulin. So even if we think about sweet food or we drink or eat something that is sweet, even if it's not sugar, it will turn on the mechanisms around insulin and insulin resistance. So I guess the bottom line is if you have something that tastes sweet, no matter the reason it tastes sweet, your body's going to prepare for a sugar load because that's what it it knows to do. So what do you do? Get rid of all sugar in your life? No, I avoid artificial sweeteners uh, as much as possible. Try not to drink calories at all because that's particularly bad. What I found too is as I cut back on my carbohydrates and cut back on junk food, I find that my mouth, my body is much more sensitive to sugar. If I'm eating candy and junk food all the time, I'll take a bite of an apple and it'll taste like cardboard. But now without junk food, without constantly dumping sugar on my body, now I take a bite of an apple and it's it's sweet, it's rich, it has so much flavor. So by cutting back on your sugar, you'll you'll turn up your sensitivity to sugar. So hopefully you'll be able to get by with less less sweetness. Actually, the artificial sweeteners, in some cases, are pushing up insulin levels more than sugar. I mean, one of the sweeteners people tend to think of as a healthy sweetener is stevia, but actually it's pushing up insulin more than sugar. Yeah, absolutely. And there's one other one that's even more common than stevia that the American Diabetic Association even used to recommend it. That's fructose. Glucose and fructose are two of the simple sugars that make up make up sucrose, which is table sugar, and they're bound together. Glucose raises insulin, right? That's what we worry about. But fructose, interestingly enough, doesn't affect insulin. You can eat something high in fructose, like a piece of fruit, and the fructose component of it at least won't raise the insulin. The glucose might. So for a while, the American Diabetic Association was recommending, well, eat fructose. Fructose is very sweet. It's actually sweeter than glucose. But the problem is, one, the cephalic response, anything that tastes sweet has the risk of raising the insulin. But fructose is particularly problematic. And we talk about this a lot in the book in that fructose drives insulin resistance independent of raising insulin. So it drives diabetes without raising the insulin. It also drives inflammation. It can drive hypertension. It can drive damage to the glycocalyx, the endovascular lining, which is stroke and heart attacks. These are the linings of our blood vessels. Of the blood vessels, that's right. That is atherosclerotic heart and brain disease, basically. So fructose is really problematic, and many people feel it's the main driver for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, that new disease that's now the number one liver disease that wasn't present before 1980. But what happened in 1980? Something called high fructose corn syrup was developed that replaced table sugar 
and Coca-Cola and, and all the soft drink companies switched from cane sugar to high fructose corn syrup as, as their main thing. And the junk food switched to high fructose corn syrup because it was cheaper because corn is subsidized by the, the government, at least in the US. So it's very, very inexpensive. That's why junk food is is so inexpensive. It's subsidized by the government, the corn, the soybeans, the sugar, and all. But anyway, the high fructose corn syrup and a lot of dietary changes related to junk food uh, happened right in the 1980s. And surprisingly, this new liver disease appeared just uh, literally a couple of years later. And we think that's partly because fructose is almost completely metabolized by the liver. Other organs of the body don't really metabolize it. Yeah, fructose is, is interesting. It, it's a sugar, but unlike glucose, which is utilized by every cell of the body, fructose is closer to alcohol, ethanol. Ethanol is a toxin. Ethanol is detoxified by the detoxification organ, which is the liver. And that's why the liver disease caused by alcohol damage, fatty, alcoholic fatty liver disease, was the only kind of liver disease before the 1980s that had this appearance. But fructose is also damaging, and it's also detoxified by the liver, almost all of it. And it has some of the same pathways. It causes the same fatty replacement in the liver that alcohol does. Which explains why children are getting a disease which was previously only seen in alcoholics. That's right. But I was really interested to see in the book that actually you were suggesting it was a study just over nine days, changing what children were given to eat. They were able to reverse some of the effects of the fatty liver disease. Yeah, and that's one of the misconceptions or, or lies, if you will, uh, in the book being taught today, even today, is there is no treatment for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The, you know, the expert opinion at universities, at top universities, I just went to a conference a few weeks ago, is that we don't know what causes it. There's really nothing effective for it. But the, the paper I cited was from Rob Lustig's group at the University of San Francisco, who did a controlled trial, which can show causality rather than just association studies. So it's, a, it's the best kind of studies. And they, as you say, they took these children with fatty liver disease. They did an interesting thing. They, they took their diet and they replaced the fructose with glucose or other isocaloric materials. So they didn't change the amount of calories in their diet because some people said, oh, they're just eating too much. They're getting fat in their liver, just like they get fat in their body. But long story short, by removing fructose, but keeping the calories the same in a short period of time, as you mentioned, they were able to reverse the fatty liver disease as demonstrated on objective imaging studies like you know MR or CT, and it was it was pretty dramatic. Fructose, of course, also appears in fruit, but that's less of an issue because fruit's got fiber, and we're not eating it in such quantities. So, generally speaking, our bodies can cope with that. Yeah, yeah, and and fruit's been around for a long time, but of course, modern fruit is bred to have very high levels of sugar. So, the apple we eat today is not like the apple we ate. 100 years ago or 200 years ago but but your your point is valid by eating eating the fructose and the sugar with a lot of non-digestible fiber it slows the absorption of the sugar and it's a healthy way to do it that's why if you want to make the fruit unhealthy put it in a blender less healthy and break up all that fiber 
and make a smoothie, and that will make it worse as far as uh, driving insulin and metabolic disease. Well, I stopped having fruit juice at breakfast many years ago. <laughs> and things it always looks so lovely. You know, you see that lovely orange juice. You can't believe it will be bad for you. I still have a hard time getting my head around. You know, my mom used to say, you know, the healthiest thing you can have for breakfast is orange juice, vitamin C and all that. But of course, now I, I believe, as you say, it, it's pure sugar. It's like a candy bar, unfortunately, without much fiber to slow the absorption. And it's one of the worst things you can consume for breakfast. Now, one of the other diseases you mentioned, Rob, is high blood pressure, which has become an increasingly common problem. And again, it seems insulin resistance is playing a role. Can you explain how that impacts on high blood pressure? Yeah. I mean, first, a personal anecdote, high blood pressure is one of the diseases that I got. I mean, it's very common. Half of adults have it. So a lot of people get hypertension and it's called essential hypertension. My doctor said, oh, watch your salt, you know, exercise, blah, blah, you know, just non-specific lifestyle changes like that. And and salt salt does play a role, but it's a controversial role. There's arguments both ways. But as I began looking at it, one thing I realized by changing my diet, by getting rid of the junk foods and getting rid of the carbohydrates, people who go on these kind of diets, there's a an effect or a side effect of the diets is they get lightheaded. In other words, they get dizzy when they stand up suddenly. And that's that's a sign of your blood pressure lowering. And that's a common finding with these diets because our blood vessels for many of us are abnormal and they increase the blood pressure. And then when we go on this particular get rid of the junk food, the blood vessels relax, they become more normal, the blood pressure comes down, we get lightheaded. So I got lightheaded when I changed my eating style. That was the indication for my doctor to take me off the blood pressure meds because your blood pressure is normal. You don't need these meds. You're going to get lightheaded. And I went off the meds and now, now I'm fine. My blood pressure is normal. There's a strong dietary link with hypertension and the foods we eat. And it's linked with a number of things. One of them is fructose because fructose can drive urate, which can drive the endothelial glycocalyx, the blood vessel lining changes that can accelerate the hypertension and make hypertension worse. What happens to the blood vessel linings? Well, nobody really knows, but there's damage in the blood vessel linings. I mean, we've seen it, you know, of course, with atherosclerotic heart disease, which is the name for heart attacks, basically. And the same thing happens with stroke. And that's where you get thickening or plaques in the blood vessel lining that originally was thought to be due to cholesterol. You know, that's why people didn't eat eggs for a long time. Now, even the American Heart Association realizes that dietary cholesterol doesn't contribute to blood cholesterol. And there's even a lot of, a lot of argument that blood cholesterol may not be the most important thing. But it was felt that blood cholesterol affected these plaques. But we know that other things affect them even more, things like metabolic disease, things like insulin resistance things like smoking, and then other factors like the fructose, the urate, and the nitric oxide, which is a chemical that, that supports the endothelial lining. Things that affect nitric oxide can affect blood pressure. Another thing I didn't know was that nitric oxide is produced in the mouth. A lot of it is produced in the mouth by the normal bacteria of our mouth. 
when we take mouthwashes, it's like taking an antibiotic. We kill a lot of the bacteria in our mouths. That's what mouthwashes are supposed to do, the antibacterial ones. There's an association study that shows that mouthwash use is linked to increased levels of hypertension in people. Presumably, it's affecting the nitric oxide levels there. But there are a number of ways the endothelial glycocalyx can be damaged by air pollution, particles. You don't even have to be a smoker. Particulates, fires that are burning outside, all these kinds of things can affect it as well. And even infectious diseases. P. gingivalis is, a, is an oral mic microorganism that's surprisingly been found in Alzheimer's disease in the brain, but it's also been found in the plaques in heart attack patients. There's a lot we don't know about this, and the, the truths are still unfolding for us all. As you say, there's increasing controversy, I think, about whether there is a link between heart disease and blood cholesterol. And if anybody is interested, I did a detailed podcast about statins with Dr. John Abramson, which people can find if they go back and look at various podcast episodes. But one of the things I did want to address the idea is that statins remove part of the bad cholesterol, the so-called LDL. But you're pointing out that they don't necessarily remove the bit of the LDL, which is potentially the most damaging. Yeah. One of my chronic diseases was uh, dyslipidemia, which was abnormal blood lipids for which I was put on a statin. Statins are very controversial. They're still recommended by most cardiologists for most situations. My thinking on this is that LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for heart disease. No question about it, but it's a relatively small risk factor compared to other things that we'll talk about. Its risk has been exaggerated because really up until recently, the only treatment doctors had, the only thing they could do was lower cholesterol and they give you a pill for that. So they've done something. There wasn't anything, you know, other than quit smoking, perhaps. So I think LDL cholesterol plays a role in heart attacks, but it's a very small role. Half of people who come into emergency rooms for heart attacks have normal cholesterol. So it's, it's a very, very small effect. There's something orders of magnitude higher with things like smoking or with insulin resistance triglycerides, HDLs, which are metabolic markers. These are much more important. But the, the problem with statins is I, I think they're overprescribed. They've been advertised in a way that exaggerates their benefits and minimizes their side effects. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Rob, was the LDL is made up of two different particle components. You've got the large and buoyant and the small and dense, and that's potentially a problem with how statins operate. Yeah, that's sort of the new hot area now because people say, well, LDL is bad. So that's what we're going to take care of. And now the evidence, like we've talked about, shows that LDL cholesterol itself isn't that tightly related to heart attacks. Half the people have normal LDL. So, so then the next step is looking at particle size and kind of diving in deeper. And then now there are more tests with NMR and other ways that will measure the particle number. So you can tell if you have large, fluffy cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, or small, dense LDL cholesterol. And the risk is different between each of those. And you can also look at the particle number for HDL as well. This is kind of an evolving area that's at the forefront of research now. 
And the idea is that statins are more capable of removing the safer, larger buoyant particles. But those larger, more buoyant particles are less likely to be involved in heart disease, some people believe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to the cynics, you know, you can say, well, even with the absolute risk, it's about 1% for Lipitor. The absolute risk reduction of a heart attack on people with statins versus without statins is 1%. But it's like, hey, 1%, I'll take that. You know, it's the number one killer. So statins work, but they work at a very, very small amount. And they have, for a lot of people, huge side effects. So you might ask then, how do statins work at all then? You know, they do lower the LDL. I mean, they do something. One thing statins do is they're anti-inflammatory as well. And it may be the anti-inflammatory effects, maybe the effect on statins and the LDLs, although it's really dramatic how much they lower LDLs and they change your lipid profile, that may be a red herring. LDL doesn't necessarily correlate that much with heart attacks, but there are other ways to lower inflammation as well. Colchicine just got approved in the United States for heart disease risk for lowering inflammation, which is interesting. A point that Dr. John Emerson did make was amongst those who are low risk, statins had no statistically significant effect on mortality at all. It was about the risk of reducing your chance of a non-fatal heart attack or stroke. Yeah, even the American Heart Association has recognized that in the United States, at least to the point where if you have a zero CT calcium score, in other words, with no calcium at all in your coronary arteries, statins are not indicated. You shouldn't be taking statins. So there's some progress here from a few years ago, doctors were writing in public journals that statins should be in the water supply. <laughs> well, strangely, in this country, the British National Institute of Clinical Excellence has just recently extended its statin recommendation, which given most of the statin data was in by 2013, it seems a strange recommendation. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of both conscious and unconscious financial influences from the pharmaceutical industry and the food industry. You know, we're about to, in the United States, revisit the food pyramid with the USDA. They're going to republish the food pyramid. I'm involved with some groups who are going to be speaking in front of Congress about acknowledging some of the results about the carbohydrates versus the, the fats and how it's possible to have a healthy, high-fat diet which is not acknowledged by the current food recommendations in the United States. Now, aside from heart disease, the other biggest killer is cancer. And the orthodox thinking has been that a number of cancers are caused by accumulated DNA damage. But again, you argue we need to look at metabolic factors. That's right. In the 1960s, or early 1970, Richard Nixon, who was president of the United States at the time, famously declared war on cancer and founded the, the National Cancer Institute and put a lot of money. And today, there have been some stunning advances and some, some good news with cancer. There's also been some very bad news. And in the aggregate, you had to ask who's winning the war on cancer. You know, the answer is probably, probably cancer. So in my chapter on cancer, I just raised some kind of new ways of looking at cancer that include metabolism and some of the work of Otto Warburg, but also to kind of step aside from the 
the idea that was prevalent for so long that cancer was just due to accumulated DNA damage. The Human Genome Project had predicted that, well, we, we've sequenced the normal human gene. Now all we have to do is we'll sequence all the cancers and we'll know the gene mutations in the can each cancer, and then we'll develop drugs for those gene mutations and it's game over, we will have cured cancer. And while we were very successful in sequencing the human genome, a few years later, the, the cancer genome project, which arguably was very successful in that they, they did sequence you know, thousands of cancers, the results completely blew everyone's mind and it was completely unexpected. And that was that there were really no or very few consistent cancer mutations that defined any of the cancers. And there were a few, but they were the exception. And by and large, each cancer, in fact, each tumor in a person has a very heterogeneous uh, mutation pattern. And it's probably not just the random mutations or, or even cancer drivers that are doing it or that are causing the cancer. And cancer cells do seem to be particularly sensitive to glucose. They are. One of the, the standard imaging tests for cancer is a, is a positron emission tomogram, which is a, a scan that detects glucose in the body. And if you look in the body, almost all cancers have a very high glucose metabolic rate. That's how we detect them in the body. It's the brain and the heart have the highest rate, and then cancers are almost as high as those. Which might be a reason for cutting your sugar intake. Yeah, there's a fascinating group of data about the use of low glucose diets and diets that turn down insulin because insulin is related to another hormone like insulin-like growth factor, which basically drives growth in cells, which can drive malignancy and it's related to cancers. People who don't have IGF-1 genetically don't get cancer. <laughs> Humans, there's a population like that. Short stature people in South America and, and similarly, turning down mTOR from the growth phase, which is a uh, high insulin phase, high insulin-like growth factor phase, to the repair phase, turns down these growth factors as well. So there's a growing sentiment that diets that turn down insulin will be beneficial for cancer patients. These are back to the ketogenic diets, which are metabolically healthy diets, which switch our body's metabolism from glucose to ketones, which are a healthy alternative to glucose. And what they've found are some striking results initially with gliomas, which is a malignant brain tumor, the most common malignant brain tumor, as well as other tumors now uh, that, that's very exciting. But you know, more work needs to be done, but it raises the possibility that metabolic treatments for cancer, at this point, not the primary treatments. We shouldn't you know, forego the old standards from the last five decades, you know, of surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, but ketogenic therapies, metabolic therapies, these dietary therapies are being used more and more in conjunction with the standard therapy to improve outcomes. So it sounds wrong for a whole range of conditions. Cutting refined carbs, which includes sugar, is obviously key. Now, you touched on it at the start of the interview, but what are the other things we need to be doing to eat? A healthy diet? Well, in my opinion, turn down the insulin secretion. 
of the food groups, we turn up fat, we turn up the protein, we turn down the refined carbohydrates. In fact, there's no dietary requirement for them. There are populations of people who don't eat any carbohydrates, you know, carnivores or some Inuits or Maasai, and they do fine. So it's a non-essential food group. So if you cut that out, and if you cut out junk food, you will be cutting out large amounts of your carbohydrate. In addition to that, and the evidence isn't as strong here, but I certainly recommend it, is to cut out the junk industrial oils that are called vegetable oils or seed oils. And there's growing evidence. They drive inflammation. They drive insulin resistance. They're one of the the oils that came into use in the 20th century, and they're a large component of junk food. So I recommend avoiding avoiding seed oils as well. You can substitute healthy oils for them, things like coconut oil, avocado oil, or olive oil. And then the third thing I do in my diet is I remove grains. Grains are problematic for several reasons. They're pro-inflammatory in that they contain proteins like gluten that can drive inflammation. There's a disease called celiac disease. People are gluten sensitive and they have to avoid all grains at all. But I believe in other experts like Mark Hyman and other people believe that a large percentage of the population actually are sensitive to gluten, but they don't necessarily have full-blown celiac disease, but it can be driving things like brain fog, arthritis, all the chronic diseases. And even if they're not allergic to gluten, the other proteins are pro-inflammatory and they can have an inflammatory reaction in the grains. The second problem with grains is in the United States, at least, we use a herbicide on them called glyphosate, which is banned in a lot of European countries. But in the US, the, the grains are sort of dipped in it. And so there are large amounts of glyphosate you can get from grains. And then the, the last reason not to eat grains is if you follow the first reason, they're very high in carbohydrates generally. So for these reasons, I avoid grains. A lot of people do in their, in their diet and their nutrition, they'll try something and then they'll wait a week and see if, see if they feel better. Like they'll give up sugar. And after a couple of weeks, most people will go, wow, that feels great. With grains, it's interesting. It takes about 90 days after you give up grains to see the effects because a lot of the effect is tied to the immune system with these pro-inflammatory proteins and everything. And it takes about 90 days for those to get out. So if you're going to try giving up the grains, you should do it for a longer period of time. So don't stop too early, basically, to find out the result on that. The other thing that you mentioned is actually the order in which you eat food. Yeah, that's a simple thing. I mean, a lot of people say, look, I don't want to worry about carbs or fats or proteins. It's too complicated. I don't want to fast. You know, it sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it's too hard. There's one last thing that you could do that that, that I do myself is you don't have to change what you eat. You don't have to change when you eat. But if you change the food order, you can actually improve your health. And that has to do with the fact that the carbohydrates are bad. You know, they're harmful in the sense that they spike your glucose. So if you're eating a meal and the meal is high in carbohydrates, what you can do is before you eat the carbohydrates, try and eat fat first or protein fat. So always eat the carbohydrates last because by eating the other food first, you'll coat your GI lining and you'll slow the absorption of the glucose, at least decrease the effects of the carbohydrates. And there actually, there's a drug called acarbose that diabetics take. That's how it works. It just works in the gut. It slows the absorption of glucose. But interestingly, it's 
one of those drugs that also, when you give it to animals, they live longer. So it's a longevity drug as well, probably for the same reason, by decreasing insulin resistance. But Rob, I wonder, is there a halfway house? Because obviously somebody like you has gone into a full ketogenic diet and I imagine you're on around 20 net carbs a day, something like that. But if you look at where the problems originate, we see these problems in the 80s. Now, prior to that, we weren't eating ketogenic diets, but we were eating less carbs, less sugar. So is there some kind of compromise? Because there seems to be an awful lot of people go one way or the other. You've got people saying, oh, I'm just going to eat whatever I want. And then you've got people going full keto. And I just wondered about that sort of middle ground. There is a middle ground. If I had one thing to avoid, even for regular people, I would avoid eating the junk food. Just avoiding those things can, I think, can make a, a big difference because there's also the mental health piece that Chris Palmer has done so well to articulate that some of these metabolic effects, they may not manifest as a heart attack or these other things, but they can manifest as schizophrenia or manic depressive disease. But in the rest of us, who knows what these are doing to our mental state as far as how we relate to each other or to our friends or to our kids or to our spouse. This is a really ripe area for investigation that hasn't been looked at closely. And I think junk foods drive that as well. Rob, so interesting. Thank you so much for sparing the time to talk. I'm off to cook a home-cooked meal now. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye. Many thanks for listening. Due to the Christmas holiday, the next episode of the podcast will be available on the 9th of January, 2024. And I hope whatever you're doing, you have a lovely holiday. If you've enjoyed the show, if you could leave a review, that would be much appreciated. It really helps. Bye for now. <laughs>